It should be on. There it is. Good morning. Thank you, Adam, for the introduction, and thank you, brothers and sisters, for the opportunity to share God's Word uh, with you this morning. It's a great joy to uh, have the opportunity to do this. I was 77 years ago last Sunday when over 150,000 courageous Allied troops stormed the five beaches of Normandy, France, in what would become the beginning of the end of the Nazi regime. Now, just prior to the invasion, just hours prior to the invasion, the Supreme Allied Commander, General Dwight D. Eisenhower, spurred on the brave young men with this unforgettable rallying cry. He said, Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. Eisenhower continues, Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But he concludes with this word of hope. Eisenhower says, The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. Now, General Eisenhower's D-Day address has become an iconic speech in American history. It is both brutally honest about the fierce opposition the Allied forces would face, and yet it is also full of hope that the enemy would be certainly defeated. But to ensure that victory, the men had a responsibility. They had to stand tall. They could not be disheartened or discouraged by the apparent strength of the enemy. And because of their courage, we know, of course, that the men went on to defeat the Third Reich, the Nazis. And in many ways, D-Day marked the definite point of Allied victory, even if the fullness of that victory wasn't realized until victory in Europe Day, almost a year Later, You see, between D-Day and V-E Day, Hitler and the Gestapo still raged against the Allied forces. Now, since the cross of Christ, the church has, spiritually speaking, lived in a, in a kind of a post-D-Day world. The Lord has already defeated his enemies, but the warfare continues. The spiritual forces of evil still rage against God and his people. We see this in everything from the militant secularism of American institutions to the opposition to the gospel in communist China. So what is God's will for his people in times of heightened warfare like these? What are we to do as soldiers in Christ's army? Well, like the Allied forces of World War II, we must stand tall. We must be strong and courageous. Our text today spells this out. It is really God's rallying cry to his people, God's battle plan for his people. In light of that, please open your Bibles to our text, Joshua chapter 1 and verses 1 through 9. Joshua is the sixth book of the Bible. You have the Pentateuch, which includes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua, the first of the historical books in the Old Testament. And once you have that text, please stand with me out of reverence for God and his holy word as we read together. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, 
The Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, and Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is God's word. Please be seated. Now, what is happening here? What is going on in our text this morning? Well, we first have to note that Joshua begins the conquest period of Israelite chronology. So God has carried his people, delivered his people out of Egyptian slavery and called them to inherit the promised land. It really picks up where Deuteronomy left off, which is with the death of Moses. And in our text this morning, God is passing the mantle of leadership from Moses to Joshua, who would be the one to lead the Israelites into the promised land. Well, who was Joshua? Joshua was born during the time of Israel's slavery in Egypt as Hashia. That was his original name. That name simply means salvation. But later on, his name was changed to Jehoshua or Joshua, which means the Lord is salvation. And it's interesting that Joshua's name encompasses the very heart of this book, that the Lord is the salvation of his people. Specifically, the book focuses on God's faithfulness to fulfill his covenantal promises to his people by conquering their enemies and bringing them into the long-awaited promised land. Another thing we need to note about this book as a whole is that uh, Joshua is looking ahead to the greater Joshua, the Messiah, the courageous conquering king who would come to utterly destroy his enemies the enemies of Satan and sin and death, and bring his, God's people into the true promised land of heaven. Now, while our text this morning, as you can see, follows several direct commands given specifically to Joshua in a warfare of flesh and blood, there are still timeless truths that we can learn and apply to our lives in our spiritual warfare for such a time as this. In particular, our text teaches us that in God's battle plan, our victory depends not upon any man, but upon the Lord's sovereign grace. Secondly, our, in God's battle plan, our mission is to be strong and courageous. And finally, in God's battle plan, 
The Lord's promises empower us to be strong and courageous. Let's begin with that first point this morning. Again, uh, look with me at the first five verses of our text where we will see that in God's battle plan, our victory depends not upon any man, but upon the Lord's sovereign grace. Now, the text begins with this phrase, after the death of Moses. In the Hebrew, what's going on here is a clear um, transition from the book of Deuteronomy to the book of Joshua. Again, Deuteronomy ends with the death of Moses. Now, this text calls Moses the servant of the Lord. Uh, This is a title that conveys a sense of honor and of responsibility. See, Moses was the representative of God who instructed God's people in the book of the law. So Moses is dead, but the promised land is not yet given to the Israelites. The covenantal promise is not yet fulfilled. The work must go on. Therefore, The Lord instructs Joshua, this is the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, with three preliminary commands. Follow along with me, if you will, from verses 2 through 5. Joshua is given three preliminary commands in this text. First, he is to arise and go, to arise and go into the land God is giving his people. In other words, he is not to abdicate. He's not to uh, pass the burden of responsibility to someone else. He's to take action. He is to lead the people. Now think about it. The Israelites had just lost their leader of so many years in Moses. They very well could have been mourning at his death. Yet Joshua was to be the leader, the strong leader the people needed. He was to go before them confidently. He is to arise and go. Secondly, he is to behold the promised land. Now this is a vast expanse of land that our text describes. It is encompassing the wilderness in the south and Lebanon in the north and the Euphrates River in the east, the Great River, the Euphrates River, that's one and the same. And then the Great Sea or the Mediterranean Sea in the west. So Joshua is to arise and go. He's to behold this promised land. But in order to do any of that, he is most importantly, to remember God's sovereign grace. And this leads us to our first main observation. Look at the end of verse 3, where God says, just as I promised Moses. And then at the end of verse 5, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsaken you. See, God is pressing it upon him. Remember that I am sovereign in this. You cannot do this alone. You need me. Why does he do that? Because the success of this battle plan depended upon the Lord's sovereign grace and not upon Moses or Joshua or any other man. See, Moses is dead, but God's plans are not frustrated. Uh, God did not need Moses or Joshua, and nor does he need any of us, but he chose to use them as instruments to carry out his purposes. God reminds Joshua of his sovereign grace in two ways here. He he uses the first person pronoun I repeatedly over and over, emphasizing that it is he that has brought the people out of Egyptian slavery, and it is he that is bringing them into the promised land. But there's another way that he emphasizes his sovereign grace. Look at uh, verse 3. God says, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. I have given to you. Now, hold on. The Israelites had not yet possessed the promised land. 
So why is God using the perfect tense here? Well, in Hebrew prophecy, this use of the perfect tense, in other words, a one-time action with continuing results, a one-time action in the past with continuing results, this is a way of um, giving a promise that while not yet fulfilled, is so surely to be fulfilled that it's stated as already having happened. It's, It's as though God is saying to Joshua, I am so certain to defeat your enemies that have already defeated them before defeating them. That's astounding. What is he doing? He is conveying, I'm sovereign. You must trust in my sovereign grace. The victory depends upon me. Remember our main point, upon the Lord's sovereign grace. Now, applying this to the contemporary world, uh, one of the ways that we can, as believers in the West, become easily discouraged or think that we are somehow losing the battle has to do with Uh, what we've already seen this month in the so-called Pride Month, has to do with the LGBTQ movement. In my final project for my undergraduate degree, I finished just a few weeks ago, I made the observation that the nation's moral trajectory has so radically and quickly changed on these issues. Even just 30 years ago, it is incredible to see how states uh, understood marriage to be the union of a man and woman, how radically that has changed. But brothers and sisters, while we should as believers lament the moral perversion of our culture, we do not need to be intimidated. We do not need to be defeatists. No, we can trust that the Lord is winning. He has not lost. And so as we see these rallies, these parades uh, on the news pretty, pretty frequently, especially this month, we know that these are displays of the fact that God has already won the victory, and, and this is the spiritual forces of evil raging against the one who's already defeated them. Now, those who participate, then, participate in them, of course, are not our enemies. They are our mission field. They are image bearers of God who need the life-saving power of the gospel. As we sang earlier, we are to be an army bold whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness, remembering all the while that the victory doesn't depend upon us, but upon the Lord. Young people, there's a special implication for us, right? Because it's our generation that is very much um, being swept by the tide of the moral confusion on these issues. One of the things that we can do to resist conformity and be bold is remembering that God's grace is multi-generational. That's exactly what God urges Joshua to do here. Look at verse 5. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You see, God's grace is a multi-generational grace. So young people, Let's, the application to us is this. Let's seek ways to understand how God's grace is multi-generational. And the more we do that, the more we will see that the hosts of heaven are on our side, that we are on the winning side in this. It's easy to be um, consumed with the cultural pressure and to think that we're alone in this, but we have the hosts of heaven on our side, on the side of righteousness. And therefore, the more courageous we will be. So, young people, let's step out of the cocoon of the 21st century American millennial life, and let's read biographies of men and women, particularly other Christians who've gone before us. See the triumph of God's grace in the early church and in the Reformation, in the Great Awakening, 
Be historically literate. Also, ask questions of those in this church who've walked with the Lord much longer than we have. Uh, Ask them questions like, how was the Lord with you in this trial or at this stage of life? How did the Lord give you victory in this area or over this sin? One of the beauties of the local church is that we have opportunities to do that every single week. That's a sweet thing. Now, to Christians who have been walking with the Lord much longer than I have, which is probably most of you, please make yourselves available to us. Reprove us, counsel us, let us see how God's grace has triumphed in your life. In doing so, you will help us see that God's grace is not only sovereign, it's not only winning, but it's multi-generational. And we'll see in that that God has always won and he always will win out. So in the first portion of our text, in these first five verses, we see the Lord's battle plan depends upon his sovereign grace and not upon any of us. Now, if that's the case, what is our mission? What is our responsibility? If God is truly sovereign, what is the human responsibility in this battle plan? And that leads us to our second truth. In God's battle plan, our mission is to be strong and courageous. Look again at verses 6 through 8. Here God says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Now, there is very much going on there, but I want us to break this down just piecemeal, bit by bit, so we can understand what is happening. Remember how we began the sermon by looking at General Eisenhower's rallying cry to the Allied troops. Well, here in this text, we see God's rallying cry to Joshua, and by extension, to those of us who are in Christ, in the greater Joshua. And this rallying cry is it's anchored in the central command to be strong and courageous. This is repeated. It's, it's the, the um, focal point of the entire battle cry. But notice God does not spend time bemoaning the apparent strength of the enemy. He, he doesn't say something like, you know, Joshua, you're, you're on your own and there's a pretty good chance you're going to die. So be strong and courageous. <laughs> no, no. He, he does quite the opposite. In fact, He uh, reminds Joshua that he is to be an instrument of God's faithfulness, and then he describes exactly the nature of godly courage. So follow along with me in verses 7 and 8. Here we see exactly what godly courage would entail in Joshua's warfare and in ours. First, number one, godly courage looks like undivided obedience to God's word. Look again at verse 7. God says, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left. Now consider, again, Joshua's situation. He is to lead God's people into the promised land, into the land of Canaan. 
Part of that would entail not buckling to the idolatry of the Canaanites. He was to stand firm. He could not compromise the worship of the true God. In order to do that, he had to carefully, undividedly obey God's word. This is not the the only time the scriptures use this language of not swerving to the right or to the left. Solomon uses the same verbiage in Proverbs where he encourages his sons to steer clear of the prostitute, of the adulterous woman. Uh, It's it's this language of undivided obedience. It's as though God is saying to Joshua, look at me, fix your eyes upon me. Don't be distracted by vanity fair over here. Don't be distracted by idolatry over here. Follow me faithfully one day at a time. Joshua's courage was to be undivided. Now, young men, there's a special implication for us here. There's much to be learned for us. Young men, if you ever read in First Chronicles, you know how the men of Issachar are said to understand the times they were living in, and they knew what Israel should do. That's what they're commended for. Well, young men, let's be like the men of Issachar. One of the things we need to understand about the surrounding culture is that it hates men who walk with God in undivided allegiance. See, brothers, this culture wants us to cave. It wants us to be weak. It doesn't want us to be strong and courageous. It does not want us to obey God's word. It wants us to surrender our strength and turn us into nothing less than domesticated weaklings. Listen to Taylor Caldwell. She was a British author. She wrote this in 1971. This is 50 years ago. Imagine what she would say today. Listen to this. She warned about this trend, this trend of the effeminization, essentially, of culture. She said this, When men are unmanned, spiritually, if not physically, then a country becomes depraved, weak, degenerate, feeble of spirit, dependent, guideless, sick. Remember this. The strongest sign of decay in a nation is the feminization of its men and the masculinization of its women. Now, that was awfully prophetic, wasn't it? Fifty years ago, she said this. Brothers, it's easy for us to hear something like that and immediately uh, point to something outside of us, something external, and to blame it on, well, it's this cultural trend, or historically, this is where we are. Um, This is why we are where we are. But let us consider our own hearts, brothers, Consider ways in which we may be surrendering our courage and our strength, giving up our masculinity. Pornography will certainly do that. There are fewer things that discourage a man. Pornography degrades women, it does, but it also kills men. We have to understand that. Pornography feeds a man's laziness because it provides him a costless and easy outlet for his sexual appetites. It robs him of his courage and strength through a cycle of repeated shame. Ultimately, it turns him inward on himself, makes him focused on himself and nothing but himself so that he stops pouring himself out for the good of others. You see, pornography kills strength and courage, young men. But there's another thing we need to see here, maybe a little bit more um, subtle that we don't tend to think about. Technology culture can also kill our strength and courage. Young men, we don't have to walk around in dresses to be effeminate. No, we just have to sit in front of screens for hours and hours and hours and hours and give ourselves over to vanity. See, there's nothing inherently wrong, of course, with television or video games or social media. 
And yet, brothers, in Joshua's day and in ours, there are real battles to be fought in the real world. We just need young men who are willing to fight them. Brothers, there are other young men in this church and beyond who need help in the fight against pornography. That's a battle worth fighting. There are future wives and future children who need to be prayed for. That's a battle worth fighting. There are many young guys in the broader culture who are confused, they're angry, they're depressed, who need to be reached with the gospel. That's a battle worth fighting. There are great men in the past to be studied and learned from, like General Eisenhower. And there are local churches who need young men who will lead. Right into her nephew, Elizabeth Elliot, once said this, The world cries for men who are strong, strong in conviction, strong to lead, to stand, to suffer. I pray that you will be that kind of a man, glad that God made you a man, glad to shoulder the burden of manliness in a time when to do so will often bring contempt. Brothers, if the Lord is convicting you, join the club. No, no, actually, join, join the club. We have a group of young men who meet every Tuesday night <laughs> to talk about these things and spur one another on. I can see a few of them in the back smiling. Yeah, that's right, Chris. Uh, it's called the Band of Brothers, and we meet to not merely hold one another accountable, but to get into each other's lives and fight to the death for each other's integrity, to be the men that God's called us to be. Why do we do this? Remember our point. Because God has called us to obey him with undivided allegiance, and that is what godly courage looks like in Joshua's life and in ours. A second aspect of godly courage. Godly courage looks like speaking God's word as a pattern of life. Look at the first part of verse 8. Here God admonishes Joshua, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Now notice the emphasis upon this book of the law. This book of the law. You see, Joshua was to teach the people the word of the true and living God. He was not to dilute it or make it more palatable to culture, to the Canaanites. He was to teach the same old truth over and over and over again, trusting that God would work through that. There was to be a constancy to Joshua's teaching. He was to teach day and night. It was not to depart from his mouth. Now, why does God emphasize speaking his word, the speaking of his word? Well, a couple brief reasons. First of all, in the ancient world, most people were not literate. They couldn't read or write. And so God's word and all religious teaching was passed down orally. So there's an important uh, historical element there. But also, we need to see that God uses his spoken word as a means of grace to teach his people what it is to know him and fear him and walk with him. Now, just before the events of this chapter... In Deuteronomy 31, Joshua, or rather God, had instructed the Levites to read the law publicly before the people, and he gives the reason why here, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. You see, God's word, when publicly read, publicly declared, is an instrument by which God conforms his people to the image of Christ. It is, as the Puritan said, a means of grace. Now, refusing to let the word depart from our mouths is challenging, right? Particularly in cultures that do not want to hear it, like our own. 
again, for Joshua and for us, the temptation to buckle is it's real and it's pressing. And the need for courage is great. But be encouraged today, brothers and sisters, by the example of our Lord Jesus, who exemplified this kind of courage for us perfectly. Just listen. Right? We just talked about hearing God's word. Listen to John chapter 12, verses 49 to 50, and note the courage that Jesus is described as having. He says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given himself, me, a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. You note the, the repeated verb there. I say, I speak, I say, I speak. That required true godly courage. You see, Jesus did not let the word of God depart from his mouth. He fulfilled the command that Joshua was given, but ultimately would fail to live up to perfectly. Jesus provided us the perfect example of what that looks like. Now, which of us can say that we've always spoken God's word with courage? I know I can't. Particularly in our evangelism, the fear of man often lurks at the door. But we know, as Jesus did, the promise of the Proverbs when Solomon says, the fear of man lays a snare, but let's not stop there. The rest of the verse says, whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And that is our great uh, motivation. That's the basis upon which we can be courageous in speaking forth God's word. Listen to J.C. Ryle. Uh, He exhorted believers with these words. In his book, Holiness, Ryle says, Strive to live a courageous life. Confess Christ before men. Whatever station you occupy, in that station, confess Christ. Why should you be ashamed of him? He was not ashamed of you on the cross. He is ready to confess you now before his Father in heaven. Why should you be ashamed of him? Be bold. Be very bold. The good soldier is not ashamed of his uniform. And so the true believer ought never to be ashamed of his Christ. Brothers and sisters, godly courage looks like speaking forth God's word, as Jesus did, as a pattern of life. Now, a final point in this section. How are we to learn this godly courage? Where does it begin? How do we cultivate this? Well, our text provides us the answer to that question. Godly courage begins with meditation on God's word. Look at the uh, second part of verse 8. God says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Here the Lord is commanding Joshua, Be a faithful student of the scriptures. Know the Bible. Be regular and studious in it. Study it day and night, day and night. And you will have courage. That's the promise of this text. This is how we learn godly courage, by meditating on God's word and therefore knowing our God and so fearing no man. Now, throughout church history, it's interesting to note that while the most cowardly men and women have been those who are most biblically illiterate. You need only think about the uh, prosperity gospel preachers on television, right? They uh, take scriptures out of context. They mishandle the text of the Bible. 
uh, to justify their carnal and man-centered adulteration of the gospel. You see, their biblical illiteracy and their cowardice go hand in hand because it's those who are often first to buckle to cultural pressure. It's those who are uh, slowest to speak out against what God hates. But on the other hand, the most courageous men and women throughout church history have been those who know the scriptures best. Think of John Knox. He was the great Scottish reformer of the 16th century. He was known for his courage. This man was bold as a lion. Uh, he stood up against the false gospel of the Roman Catholic Church, and therefore one noble said of him after his death, he said this, looking at his grave, here lies a man who in his life never feared nor flattered any flesh, who has been often threatened with pistol and dagger, but has ended his days in peace and honor. What was it that made Knox so courageous? It was that, by the help of God, he spent himself studying the scriptures. He knew his God. Joel Beakey called Knox a master of both Old and New Testament texts. Brothers and sisters, the application for us is, is very simple. There's, there's no shortcut. There's no silver bullet or magical formula for learning godly courage. If we would be strong and courageous in these troubled times in our warfare, we must be, like John Knox, students of the Bible. We must know what it is to wield the sword of the Spirit. Courage begins here. And when we do this, we will be, as the psalmist says, bold as lions. Now, at this point, you're probably thinking, wow, that is a, that's a lot for me to do. That's a lot for me to handle. Who is sufficient for these things? Well, I'm glad you asked. God has not only ensured our victory, that was our first point, he's not only given us our mission, but he has given us the means of fulfilling this mission as well. This is our final point this morning. In God's battle plan, the Lord's promises empower us to be strong and courageous. Now, there are essentially two promises in this text. First one, very briefly, the blessing of God. The blessing of God. Look at verse 7, where God says, that you may have good success wherever you go. And in verse 8, he re reiterates this promise, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Now, this is the language of Psalm 1. This is a, uh, a godly man who, as a pattern of life, obeys God and so enjoys the blessing and joy of walking in obedience with God. That is not to say that Christians or God's people will never suffer. It's not to say everything will go well, that there will not be trials, that there will not be suffering that is intense. I know many of us in this room are, are facing intense suffering even today. No, it means rather that God has so ordered the world that as a, a man or woman lives a life of faithful obedience to God, that man or woman will know the most joy and blessing. Most of all, spiritual blessing, whereas the life of disobedience to God will bring shame and curse and ultimately damnation. So we see the blessing of God, but there's a, there's a second promise in this text, and that is the presence of God. That's where we're going to meditate uh, for our point here. 
Look at verse 9. God says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. And then the promise, For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Here the Lord is repeating the command. Remember, be strong and courageous. This is the third time he's emphasizing it again. Right? Repetition in Hebrew literature is a way of, of, of driving home a point. That's what, what God is doing here. Uh, he's also providing the negative aspect of what courage would entail. So he's saying, don't, don't be disheartened, Joshua. Don't be discouraged. Don't give in to the propensity of your heart to fear, to cower, be strong and courageous. But notice, notice, this is our point. Notice that Joshua's courage was not to be the product of some stoic willpower. It wasn't to be some self-help mechanism, but it was to be the result of trusting God's promise to him. In other words, God's call to Joshua wasn't merely man up. It was man up because God is with you. The Almighty is with you. And brothers and sisters, we have the joy of seeing today that this promise given to Joshua is a promise given to us as well because of Christ. And if you are here today and are not a follower of Christ, of Jesus, we are, we're very glad that you're here. We, we really are. And we look forward to talking with you after the service and getting to know you better. We love you sincerely, and because we love you, we want you to hear today the best news you will ever hear. And that is this, that God has created us, you and I, to know him, to walk in right relationship with him, to reflect his image. In other words, to, to show forth to the world by our very lives, this is what God is like, to be holy, to be loving, to be zealous for righteousness. But the problem is, we've all failed to do that. That's what the Bible calls sin. Our first parents in the Garden of Eden rebelled against God, but they didn't merely rebel. Notice in, in terms of our text, notice that they rebelled against God and then they hid from God. In other words, they were sinful and their sin led them to be cowardly. They were not strong and courageous. They failed that test we come from them, because of that, we inherit the nature to do the very same thing. Isn't it true? By nature, we sin against God, against others. We, we become entrapped in our own tiny nutshell of our universe, where Josiah wants to do what Josiah wants to do, and everything's about Josiah and maximizing Josiah's glory. Every one of us does that by nature. See, by nature, we don't want courage. We want comfort. We want convenience. The law of God. God has graciously given us his law so that we might see how we do this. Okay, so we do it by, by exalting other gods, by worshiping other gods. We do it by taking the name of God in vain. In other words, using it flippantly, using God's name as a curse word. We do it by lying. We do it by coveting what is not ours. We do it by committing adultery. In all of these ways, we have sinned against God. Unbelieving friend, if you're here today and you do not know Christ, think for a moment about all the times that you have sinned against God and against others. God is a just judge. He must punish sinners. He would not be God if he did not. And none of us is authorized to water down that truth. And God has created a purpose called, a place rather, called hell for that purpose. 
The Bible describes hell as a place of eternal and conscious torment. So unbelieving friend, if you were to die today and stand before God, should he welcome you into heaven or would he be just to send you to hell? If you're troubled by that, that's a good thing. You should be. But hear this. If you're in that place today, if you see that you are a sinner deserving of the wrath of God, in desperate need of the grace of God, God has made a way for you to be saved. God has made a way for you to be reconciled to him. You see, 2,000 years ago, God became a man, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, unlike us, was bold as a lion. He was strong and courageous where we failed to be. He wasn't concerned about his convenience and comfort and maximizing his own glory. He was constantly about bringing glory to his Father. Remember we read about earlier, that I may say what my Father has told me to say. That's what Jesus was about. In other words, he did perfectly what we had failed to do on behalf of sinners. And then in great courage, we often think about the cross as a display of love, and that's certainly true, but imagine the courage it must have required Jesus to go to the cross, to pray in the garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done, knowing that he would be forsaken by God the Father for the first time in all of history. On that cross, Jesus bore the very wrath of God that we deserve. It fell upon him. He took the penalty for sin upon his shoulders. And then three days later, God declared to the world that the perfect sacrifice for sin had been accepted. And he said that by raising his son from the dead. And now, that same Jesus who was raised from the dead 2,000 years ago, the one we sang about earlier as our music team led us, is seated at the right hand of God. And he is not He is not asking for permission to come into your heart. He is commanding everyone everywhere to turn away from sin and to trust in him. Jesus is Lord. Now, the way you come to him is not, don't, don't misunderstand me, it's not by trying really hard to do all the things we've been talking about this morning because your best will not be good enough for God. It will not be perfection. So, unbelieving friend, don't hear me saying you need to do penance, you need to clean yourself up, you need to be resolved to, uh, to be a good person. No, you need only come to him by faith and cast yourself into his merciful arms. And if you are there, you are safe. That's the promise of the gospel. Unbelieving friend, there's nothing more important than where you spend eternity. Don't play games with your eternal soul. God offers you mercy today. You'd like to talk more about that, you are surrounded by people who would love to do just that. Now, brothers and sisters, speaking to Christians, how is it that this promise, the Lord your God is with you wherever you go, that promise, how does that empower us to be strong and courageous? Remember our main point that this is supposed to empower us to be strong and courageous. The answer is found in two words by faith. By faith. By our Holy Spirit-granted, Holy Spirit-sustained faith, we must trust that God is indeed with us because he's promised to be. And on that basis, we wage war. On that basis, we stand in Jesus' victory. You see, it was by faith that Joshua and the Israelites went on to defeat the Canaanites. And so also by faith, 
We stand in Christ's victory over sin and death and hell. Young people, we see God's multi-generational grace by faith. Brothers and sisters, we obey God's word with undivided allegiance by faith. Young men, we pursue integrity and godly manhood by faith. We speak boldly in our evangelism by faith. We study God's word by faith. In short, we can be strong and courageous for such a time as this because we trust that God is with us and he has proven that he's with us because he died and he rose from the dead. And that's a historical fact. So we anchor our lives there and then we go forth because of the gospel, the gospel that Joshua didn't see. He did not know um, Christ and him crucified in the sense that we do. We have better privileges than he does. What an amazing thing that is. J.C. Ryle, again, the Anglican bishop, said this about biblical examples of saints who lived in this way. J.C. Ryle said, what was the secret of their victory? Their faith. They believed on Jesus and believing were made strong. They believed on Jesus and believing were held up. In all their battles, they kept their eyes on Jesus and he never left them nor forsook them. They overcame by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And so may you. Brothers and sisters, I hope you've seen this morning that God in the midst of our warfare, is sovereignly fighting on behalf of his people. In fact, he's already won. So we can take heart today. He has graciously given us a role in this battle plan. Stand firm in strength and courage. He has outlined for us exactly what that would look like as we obey his word and speak his word, and most importantly, as we study his word and so cultivate that courage. And finally, He's given us the means of fulfilling that mission faithfully, his promises. And his call to us today, as it was to Joshua, is that we believe that he is with us. And by faith, we will be made strong. May the Holy Spirit of God who lives in us help us to that end. The victory is the Lord's. Start to finish. Brothers and sisters, let us arise, go forth, and be strong and courageous for the Lord our God is with us wherever we go. Let's pray. Father, you are great and mighty. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the Lord of hosts. You are with us this morning. Now, Father, as we have meditated upon your truth, we feel the, the weight of what you have called us to do, and yet we know that Jesus has gone before us and borne that weight and is committed to helping us as we believe upon him and be strong and courageous in our warfare. Lord, we trust you. We know that you are the victorious king. And so, God, let us be a people who are not timid, who are not cowardly, but are strong and courageous. Thank you that you are committed to helping us to that end. And we pray that you would be glorified in it, that your kingdom expanded, your name worshipped. And we pray all these things in that name, the name of Jesus. Amen.